Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, one of the things that uh, that always interests me is that I feel like talking about the future of work and engagement and. Uh, it's such a 2018 thing to do. It's sort of this meta. We, we talk about work in a very meta way. So I, I'm wondering, like, in 20, 30, even 50 years, what are, you know, what the new language we're going to find about talking about work is going to be? Um, so... Do you, think we'll, do you think we'll go deeper into neuroscience and... I think we absolutely will, and I think we've got a whole bunch of things that we need to look into. So I'm part of... Um, Vint Cerf is the guy who invented the internet, and I'm part of a, a, a That's working such a nice thing to be able to say, isn't it? It's pretty amazing, and he's a pretty amazing guy. <laughs> Incredibly humble, smart, beautiful man. But anyway, he's um, set up a working group of people from across the world looking at, it's called Innovation for Jobs, uh, and it's looking at actually what we've done as innovators is spent years working on technologies that will take away jobs, that will automate, that will become increasingly smart. But that means that in the future, 10, 20, 30 years, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent of the jobs that we're doing now will disappear. And it doesn't matter which way you look at the stats. Yeah. Um, and when I first joined the group, I was like, yeah, we've said this before. The truth of the scenario is we've never been in a situation we're in now. And many of those jobs will disappear. So innovation for jobs is looking at how do we uh, engage, how do we excite innovators to start coming up with solutions which are more about uh, how do you prepare society for a time when those jobs just aren't there. Because if you start thinking about what might happen when 30, 40, 50% of people don't have jobs and don't have an income and don't have purpose, you end up with a social situation which is actually really damaging. So there's a whole bunch oh, of stuff. That's fascinating. So, so you're saying that almost in 30 or 40 years, rather than thinking about how to keep people happy and engaged to work, we'll just actually be looking for work for human beings. Or, looking, or changing our relationship with work. I right. mean, so what we're doing at the moment is uh, in any large corporation that you work in, um, what will happen is somebody will say to you, uh, as a manager, why are we doing this like this? It makes no sense. We could really save time. Bye. And the manager will go, oh, just do it. Or, uh, oh, that's the way we do things. Hmm. And people are going through this process on a daily basis. And it's really frustrating. And the first time somebody says that to you, and you know you're wasting your time, you, you can cope with that. Second time, third time, you're like, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to come in and get my wages. And that's where your disengagement piece comes from. It's people not having any sense of why they're doing what they're doing. And I think the, the more that we become global, the less idea people have of what it is that their, their particular job is about within the big context of the company, um, which is really dispiriting and really un, not the best way of getting the best from people. I'm having a cup of coffee with Katz Keeley, who's the founder of Beep, which is an acronym that she'll explain shortly. Uh, we're in London, and uh, I've realised it's been over 10 years <laughs> since I've last seen you. <laughs> but you look exactly the same, so... This is a good thing. Yes, <laughs> it's, the, it's the magic of memory. And uh, it, it was interesting, because, you know, 10 years, uh, over 10 years ago, we, we was a trans, it was a transmedia conference, which was the thing at the time. Yes. Uh, we were... We were very excited, I think, about the idea of telling stories on multiple platforms, which, you know, seems so archaic now to even phrase it in that way, because people can't imagine it in any other way. 
No, and I, th I think that was actually, it was quite um, something that I referenced a lot, all of those kind of multidisciplinary, open, transparent ways of working were actually quite uh, influential in the way, in all of the work that I've done ever since, really. Yeah. Well, the, the, the funny thing about the internet back then, when it was sort of first hitting the world of work and the world of popular culture, was that it, it was coming more from the perspective of artists yes. and creators and the, the internet in the early days, uh, and this makes us sound very old, of course, uh, really felt more like an experimental art project than it did massive platforms driven by data. It was a brave new world, wasn't it? We none yeah. of us knew. And you know, the, so the first ever, the, I did the first open innovation competition back in 2003. People talked to me about work, you know, say, what was the psychology behind it? How did you figure out? I didn't know what I was doing at all. All I knew was, the client had a really interesting platform. They needed to contact a bunch of influencers. So I tried this open innovation way of doing things. You know, well, give me, tell me what you need and I'll figure out a way of engaging this community of innovators. Um, and you know, Hewlett Packard didn't know what they were going to get out of it. And to be honest, we didn't either because nobody yeah. had done it before. And it, it makes me realize that when people talk about open innovation or other things like that, uh, people bring a lot of themselves to the definition, to the concept. You know, I've yes. heard German manufacturing engineers talk about open innovation, and it, it just sounds like people looking at, at blueprints together on, at a, you know, on a workbench. Yes. Uh, but when you talk about it, you talk about it almost from the perspective of, as you say, Burning Man. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose Burning Man <laughs> is the biggest co-created experiment that's ever happened anywhere. Um, but I think what I learned. As I went through um, from that kind of open innovation platform, uh, and in those days it was about putting an idea or a question, a client question on the web, asking a community of innovators to respond to that in a very open way, uh, asking them to get all of their people to respond to that so then we could get an idea of um, how much traction they would get through the work that they were doing. Um, that worked very well, but actually then I think what open innovation has come to in large corporates is it tends to be very centralized yes by which i mean one person will have a job where they pose the question um, and then their job and the way that they're incentivized is to get many as many people as humanly possible coming up with ideas to solve that problem right within often within the confines of the corporation yes always within the confines of the corporation and then what actually happens is when we're talking about engagement and uh, dispirited employees uh, I am the person who's running the project. I get 300 people giving me ideas. Great, I've done really well. We might use one of those. So that means 299 people have spent time on those ideas which never get rewarded, never get recognized, nothing ever happens with them. Which is really not the best way to get the best out of people. Right. So I think there's a, a problem with that. I don't know why I went back from there to Burning Man. Ask me about Burning Man again. <laughs> I could talk about Burning Man forever. <laughs> This is the problem when you go to Burning Man, you see. It rewires you. Uh, well, tell me, I mean, because for me, Burning Man, I mean, you've sort of got Burning Man as a millennial experience where they go there as, you know, to take lots of Instagram photos. But you also have Burning Man as the, the counterculture tradition, which is very closely linked to the birth of the digital world, uh, like the well. Yes. And, you know, there was this whole yes. count, hippie counterculture Stuart Brand and, and yes. all these people, uh, it, it's sort of firmly within that tradition as well. Uh, so 
what do you think is the lesson from something like Burning Can you still have a lesson from Burning Man today or is it, you know, has it just become a, yes. a simulation of itself? No, I mean, I, I was invited by, there's a story, I can tell you a story about how I ended up at Burning Man. So um, the founders of Burning Man invited me to go there um, four years ago. It's very rare for people to be invited to Burning Man as a guest. Um, and at that time, I was trying to get Dan Ariely, who clearly is my behavioural guru, to help me with a big behaviour change project we were doing across London. Um, the day that I met him for dinner for the first time, and it had taken some time to make that happen, um, was the day that I'd been invited to Burning Man. So I say to Dan, uh, funniest things happened, I've been invited to Burning Man, do you think I should go? And he just went, oh my God, who are you? <laughs> so I said, oh, if I go to Burning Man, can I hang out with you? And he said, yes. I didn't see him at Burning Man, hardly at all, by the way. But I did say yes. Um, and I had no understanding of what I was going to get into at all. So I arrived there in a, a, a sports car. That was not the right thing to arrive. Um, it was the most extraordinary experience I've ever had in my life. And people say it's become commercialised. Well, I did meet Chip Conley there, and I did meet Tony Shea there, and I did have breakfast. I mean, I met so many super influential people from the valley there, but it doesn't matter, because when you're there, because those rules that they use change the rules of engagement, it changes the way people are. Uh, and for me, who's somebody who spent my life trying to figure out how to help big companies through transformation, when you're there, you suddenly see how incredible people can be and how creative uh, and how bonded. And, and, and these rules open. aren't, <clears throat> I mean, these rules aren't coming to work dressed as a unicorn won't change the way you behave. It's, it's not the surface stuff, is it? It's the underlying philosophy. It's everything. It's about being an individual. It's about um, feeling that you're able and being rewarded and recognized for being an individual. And what you see is only those moments of you know, the unicorn or the beautiful half-naked woman. But that's, that's not what Burning Man is. What Burning, I mean, there's all sorts of things that go on, but it's um, purely about autonomy and reward and recognition and um, being able to be 100% yourself, which is the way that people should be and exactly what people are not allowed to be when they're at work. But these famous CEOs of big technology companies go and have that experience there and then they go back and create the same you know tailorist uh, conservative organizations when they're home I mean even they yeah. struggle with you, you know with with what is achievable in, in the real world I think human beings are hardwired to resist change and to accept what's normal and so we've been brought up in a situation where to have a successful company, to be successful within a company, to be a leader within a company, it has to follow command and control right. and knowing all the answers. And, but there are, I mean, there are so many companies that are not using those models. I mean, you know, Zappos being the most obvious thing to look at, or 3M, or, you know, actually Google to some extent, although I know there's a lot of mythology around their culture. I think they overwork people, but you know they could get things much better. But they're still trying really hard to figure out how they can recreate um, organizational culture to, to allow people to be the best they can be. Facebook, however, people may see that organization, they're really 
very good at making sure that everybody who works there understands what the North Star is and is rewarded and recognised. So, I mean, there are whole bunch of different experiments that have proved yeah. to be successful. You, you, you talk a lot about, uh, and this has really been part of the inspiration behind BEEP, which you need to, you need to actually define for us shortly. Yeah. Uh, but you talk about a lot of the traditional models of work trigger what you call a threat state. Yeah, yes. b- because of what we've learned about the way the brain works. Can, can, you, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so our brain, easy to forget when we're living in the world we're living in, hasn't changed at all since we were living on the savannah when we were first Homo erectus. Um, The reason that we were so successful is because we, as humans, are very good at keeping social groups together. Um, To keep social groups together, uh, we've got a certain set of conditions that we need to feel in in the space whereby we can behave in a social way. Um, the, The conditions are empathy and certainty and fairness and autonomy and connectedness and respect. Uh, the certainty piece is actually really important when you look at the evolutionary piece because <coughs> if you're in the savannah uh, and you can see for miles, then you know when something's going to be coming at you. Oh, right? this is. I heard someone talk about this as prospect and refuge, they called it. Right. Prospect right. is the ability to see the terrain, yes. and refuge is a feeling that you've got like a cave behind you or something that you can run into if necessary. Yes. So that means certainty, knowing what's coming, is super important if you want people to behave in ways which are social, by which I mean, you know, to be kind of innovative and communicative and collaborative and all of those things that actually you would want your employees to be. Um, So that's good conditions. They're the conditions that create this reward um, uh, state. Then we've got the other state. The other state is the fight or flight, the threat state, um, which of course we evolved so that if we were being charged by a large growly saber-toothed tiger, we <laughs> could get away. Right. So we've got six times more neural pathways which are constantly looking for threat. We actually look for threat like um, six times every second. Right, because so you then. can survive not being social, but you can't right. survive not being eaten. Collaboration, not so important. Right. And so when you then convert that into an organizational situation every time that change comes at you from out of the blue where you don't know how it's going to affect you where you've got no idea where it's come from uh, people immediately go into the threat state which means that they are anything but collaborative communicative innovative any of the things that you want your employees to be and when you're in a large corporate and again I've been in a lot of them and you're going through a reorg a change of leadership even if that leadership is trying to do the right thing for the employees um, a new technology that comes in right. every time people see the, pe- people see the, like, the saber-toothed tiger rather than the opportunity yes, yes. and that makes them stressed. You know, the, the, the other word aside from engagement that uh, people love to talk to without necessarily knowing what it means is performance. And it seems to me performance is driven a lot out of some of these values that come from the threat state as well, which is it's performance relative to your peers. Yes. Uh, so it, 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 one of the things that always disturbed me was GE's culture of uh, the rank and yank and decimating the bottom 15%. I mean, people who work there must have been, as you say, under the constant threat of being eaten. Yeah. But they were considered to be high-performing as well. Yes. So, 
Do we need a new me- do we need a new measure for what success in the workplace looks like? I guess I think is my we question. absolutely do. Yeah, and I think you know, I mean, the product, even though we're moving to being more automated, our productivity efficiency is is not getting better. Productivity levels in really? the UK actually productivity levels in the UK are worse than they've ever been. So there's there's a massive disconnect going on, and while ever that's because of all these sunny days we've been having lately. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can blame that on global warming. <laughs> we've got big problems, and and if you think that when people are disconnected, disengaged, oh, and then and we're with us before we start talking about purpose, um, all of the work that Dan Ariely does proves beyond recognition that humans, that purpose is the most, impo- most important thing for human well-being. So when you're working in a, an organisation where you may have incentives, but those incentives are usually wrong, it's, it's, people have no purpose. It's is, this, is this purpose, capital P, like the company's massive transformative purpose, or is this little purpose, like w- your sense of purpose? Yes, it's like, it, what am I It's the latter, for? right? Yeah. yeah. You know, how many times have you been in a situation where you'll say to your manager, why are we doing this? It's a waste of time. We could do it better. And your manager so oh, just do it. That's the way we do things around. That's the way we've always done things. And that happens again and again throughout your day. And eventually you just think, I'll just turn up, take the money, go to the meetings. You know, people have no real understanding of where their particular part of effort goes into the big picture. So what drives purpose then? Is, is it being able to see the... the rationale for your contribution and the results of your work is that the is, is it visibility actually yeah, it's, and, and um so i was just thinking one of dan's um experiments was he asked people to sit and fill in a document and there were three test dates one of them is they test um fill in the document they then give it to the woman at the front the woman at the front would just look at it and say thank you very much then put it down the second uh, test case was they'd do all this writing, they'd hand it to the woman at the front, she'd take it off them and just put it down, not say anything. The third test case, um, um, they'd give it to the woman there and she'd immediately just put it into the shredder. The difference between the feelings between those people was enormous and whether they'd come back and do it again was enormous. So. Doing something and having no reward, no recognition for it is damaging to the human psyche. And it's happening across not every organization, but most of the organizations that I've worked in. People literally work every day, not quite knowing what they're doing. Uh, you know, one of the big companies I'm talking to at the moment, they call it a donut eating culture. They just go to meetings because at least then they can tick off their days. They fill in their timesheets. They've got a reason to go into a meeting. This is not good for human beings. Right. But it's accepted. And that's why when we, you know, this figure we were talking about earlier, Gallup say that the worldwide workforce, um, 87% of the worldwide workforce is disengaged to some extent. But you, you see disengagement really as a symptom of lack of purpose. Yes. As opposed to its own thing, right? Lack of purpose, lack of autonomy, lack right. of certainty. Um, a general feel of, of malaise. And I've actually been on panels where I've talked about how the workplace should be, how the workplace could be, which is about being empowered to find problems, to fix problems. Well, when, when I look at the kind of the six Satans of your traditional model, you know, which is apathy, unexpected change, command and control, micromanagement, being disconnected, having decisions come from the top, this 
while it seems to be like that sort of Taylorist, uh, uh, very sort of scientific management of human beings model that came around a hundred years ago, yes. don't you think there's a risk that we could easily recreate the conditions for this in the very moment that we have algorithms and data and machine learning and AIs potentially managing us? Yes. Like we're actually at a very dangerous point in the design of the workplace, possibly. Completely. And on the other side of things, it's the most exciting moment that mankind's ever had. Because we can go the other direction. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Because we, you know, we know more about the brain than we ever have before. We're more connected than we ever have been before. It's right. like we've got all of the bits of the jigsaw puzzle to be able to start to recreate. And not just in corporate environments, in governmental environments. It's the same thing. People are people. We... We can, we can either use this technology to empower people or we, can we yes. or we can weaponize it. Yes. And the more we weaponize it, the worse people will get, which is exactly what's happened to here, because the more threatened they'll be. And whatever happens, people are always going to be the most expensive part of our budgets. Yeah. It's really obvious. And yet we, what we do, because it's really, people are difficult, we're irrational, we're a bit crazy, we're... It's easy to buy a license for a new technology and expect it to be a solution. It's not going to be a solution. What it does is just push people further away and less in. Well, I mean, I've seen how algorithms are... There's not a lot of great evidence for how algorithms are managing people nicely. I mean, whether it's work scheduling, you know, just giving people just enough hours so that they oh. fall below the definition of employee or, or it's, you know... Uber drivers being managed by algorithms to get them to work on days they don't actually want to work. And there's a lot of growing evidence of it being used quite inappropriately. But one of the visions behind BEEP, which this is the time I think you'd tell us what that stands for, (laughs) uh, is the use of algorithms to actually do the opposite. It is, it's it's AI specifically. So it's called the, uh, the Behavioral Enterprise Engagement Platform. Right. Uh, and my dream is when you're sat in one of those meetings that most people in corporate environments spend most of their time in and somebody moans, somebody else will go, why don't you just beep it? So in the way that the open innovation model that I did some, those years ago uh, wasn't so good because actually people would come up with ideas that weren't used and that's frustrating, we turned the model upside down. So what we're doing is inviting people to report the things that get in the way of them doing their best work And if enough people across the organization are talking about similar problems, and there's all sorts of very clever AI-led ways of uh, helping people to see similar problems, um, then the company knows that's a a problem. Uh, Right now, we have a situation where uh, the CEO... Will it be anonymous? It can be anonymous at, at the beginning. But there's also transparency is built into it. We've got a big screen rep- representation. The whole model is about reward, recognition. It's turning it upside down, saying we will respect you right. for telling us what is causing inefficiencies in our organisation. Is it just negative things or can people suggest th- good ideas as no, well? No, but it's all positive because what we're doing is trying to unearth the problems, right. reward and recognise people for talking about the problems. And then if enough people are talking, they're brought into um, uh, design thinking workshops where they can together think about how they can solve that. This, in a way, is a, a modern manifestation of the Toyota production system. Exactly that. It's yeah. Toyota way on steroids, yeah, operationalised. Yeah. Which is about being actually the more transparent you are about letting the line workers 
you know, stop stop the line and fix a problem there and then. Yes. You know, it, it improves the overall efficiency. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the massive problems that have happened recently, the big reputational problems, and that's more and more of a risk because actually in the good old days you made a mistake and you could pretty well get a PR company to sweep it under the carpet. Now you make a mistake, it's all over social media. So yeah. one stupid thing can ruin your reputation, can mass have a massive impact it, on your value. It's, it's fascinating actually seeing values now, to your point, coming from the bottom rather than the top. I, I mean, the, the example recently of, of Google as own employees uh, voting f uh, for them not to take on Pentagon contracts or right. or wanting the visibility of what they're going to do in China. Yeah. It's something you would never have seen in the past. No, but it, that's going to happen more and more. And, and and another one of the biggest challenges that people have, obviously, is that 70% um, uh, of the workforce by 2030 are going to be millennials. I'm not sure I like that word, but we all know what that means. And those people will not come into an organization that's called clunky traditional Taylorist models, they won't stay. They'll come and do a year and a half to get your brand on their CV before they go and set up their own thing or join right. a company that has a culture so if that feels right for if them. If you have platforms like Beep and organizations which allow you to, regardless of your position, uh, help the company be more effective, you, you've still got a traditional organization with traditional silos and titles and I mean, how, how much of that do you think we also need to potentially dismantle in, in order to give people their sense of purpose back? I think that um, the reason that we've built Beep the way that we have is because it's, it's actually not massively disruptive within that. People can still have their job title. Right. What it does is, is allow moments of osmosis between the silos. So as an example, uh, the design thinking workshops, uh, the algorithm will make sure the people in that workshop are from as diverse places as possible. So they have a moment where they can come together around shared challenges to start thinking about how they can fix the company. So it's, it's less breaking down the silos and more, well, let's just try and figure out how we can be a little bit more... Uh, more like an organism than or virus. a machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you want to infiltrate the organization without putting the organization itself into exactly. a threat state. Exactly. Yeah. And, that's, you know, I mean, and, and that's the biggest problem because most senior leaders, as I say, come from a particular way of being. And many of them have been brought up and taught through their MBA, whatever, that there's a particular way to lead. And you need to know all the answers. And it's a big change for them to actually understand it makes them a better leader if they start to listen, learn, empower their workforce. Th this, is, this is something I've been thinking about as well because um, if, if, you really, if you really want to go on the, the, right, the, the higher level side of the path where you're empowering people and using technology uh, to connect them, as a leader you've actually got to do the, take the non-intuitive step of, of actually stepping back. Yes. Uh, and abandoning some of your own ego and the sense of that you need to be right and that you're in yes. charge because you're actually giving up power uh, in order to improve the overall organization. And again, you know... The Which is threatening, right? It is. And again, if you look at behavioral psychology, the proof is we always think our own ideas are the best ideas. <laughs> and the further you get into a position of power, it rewires your brain even more so. Right. Um, and so it's difficult. Because you build a narrative that you're the hero of the story. Yes, yes, indeed. And um, 
to break out of those patterns, we need to accept these cognitive biases. We need to understand how our brain is wired um, so that we can move beyond that and evolve. And actually, the really good leaders are the leaders who do make people feel that they're valued and rewarded and recognized and have a sense of purpose because those people with a sense of purpose make less mistakes. They're more productive. They're more in. Well, do, I mean, do you ultimately think in 20 or 30 years when more work is automated and there are more algorithms that we're working in conjunction with, do you think that the workplace, that companies themselves will look very different? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, will it be more like freelancers that we're essentially, we, we don't have a specific role. We're brought on for specific problems. It's a really interesting point, and, and, and I think there's something about being part of a community. I think there will always be um, a need for being part of a thing. Uh, that thing being the companies that we see now are so far away from the kind of companies I think we could get the best out of people. But I can imagine a much more empowered, much more distributed, much more... Um, fluid. Fluid, transparent. Right. Workplaces you want to be at, the kind of workplaces you wake up and kind of think, you know, I'm actually looking forward to today rather than, oh God. Well, well, people talk about startup culture, you know, which I think is a bit of a myth. But the one thing that is amazing about when companies first begin is that everyone pitches in. Like there's, there's not a sense of defined, stratified yeah. roles. Yeah. It is a community rather than a company. It is. Uh, and I think you're right that at the beginning, especially, you know, I talk a lot about the fact that my company has a mission. It's not just about making money. Uh, we've got a one-to-one -one model. So every time we sell to a corporate, we gift to a not-for-profit network. So there's purpose is built into our business model. Um, many startups are, uh, start up with a mission, but because they don't write that into their business model right from the very beginning, they get a VC who comes on board and trashes their company. And much as I'd love to I'd love to join in this myth of, you know, the valley and everybody wants to be more like a startup. They do spit people up and chew them out because they put under unbelievable, tremendous pressure. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot of mythology, big companies desperately wanting to become a startup. Well, no, you don't really, because if you spend any time in some of those startups, they're not very nice places to work. Right. It, there's a lot of mythology around it. it it's friend of mine, I was talking to him about the mistakes that big companies make and the, you know, the lack of autonomy and certainty and uh, lack of purpose and da da And he, was, he runs a big company in Silicon Valley. And uh, he went very quiet. And I was like, what are you thinking? And he just said, it's my company. Somehow in five years, I've turned into that dinosaur. All I do is push my people. I've stopped asking them for their opinions. I've stopped asking them for their input. They're just there to work. They're factory workers. And these are top-level engineers. It's bonkers. So there's a systemic problem there, I think. And I think you're right about this, uh, the myth of the startup. So what, what's, what's the better way? <laughs> what's the how, better how should way? you feel when you come to work? Well, uh, can we imagine a way? Yeah, I mean, I, I wake up every morning. I love what I'm doing. Uh, the people I work with love what they're doing. The last company that I had, it was completely flat, actually. I mean, I, I did make the ultimate decision about what was going to happen, but everything we did, we all were a part of the decision. And if you then go back to the, um, the cognitive piece around the fact that we all think our own ideas are the best ideas, if 
then you're handed somebody else's idea from the top, as an example. You will always resist that. Whereas, if you can be uh, in a situation where you're co-creating all the time and your opinion and knowledge and insights and wisdom are being recognized by the company, um, that's where we should be. That's, it just feels <laughs> like it's just common sense. And I, you know, I've been on a couple of panels recently where I've talked about this idea of, I, wanna, I don't see why we shouldn't wake up in the morning and want to go to work. Doesn't that feel natural? And they'll say, yeah, but some people want to just get up and do their job and then, um, and then go home. And I'm like, who wants to spend 10 hours of every working day, more time than they do with their loved ones, doing something they don't care about? Nobody wants that. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.